I get invited to preach at my church, it being the Church of England that I attend, I get the, uh, the assigned passages from the, the church lectionary for the day, which is usually uh, three of them. I, I get to pick which one I do, um, and I quite often preach at an early morning, 8 o'clock communion service, and I get uh, 10 minutes officially to do the sermon there. And I usually do the Bible reading myself, and that makes it about 12 that I do. But when I speak at um, our 11 o'clock service, I get a whole 20-minute slot. So you can tell which, which of those slots this material must come from. Uh, and I, um, I usually, you know, I, I, I read the passages, and I think on them probably, just sort of prayerfully think on them for about a week, before I've settled on, on which one and sort of thought through the passage before I, I then start reading various commentaries on the passage. Uh, I find a website called Bible Hub very useful because it, it not only has multiple translations available for free on the web, um, but you can look at the Greek and it, it links the Greek to uh, concordance of the Greek. So you can look into the, the, the range of meanings of particular key words and so on. You know, I, I can't read Greek, although I've tried to teach myself a bit and you you inevitably pick up a bit of ancient Greek doing philosophy and so on. Um, but I, I try and look into, the, into the, the Greek and remember that we're reading scripture in, in translation and translators are fallible and translators have their own biases and different translations will translate some passages quite different from others and other passages will be almost identical. Uh, and indeed, when I, we do Bible study in my Bible study group, we usually read the, the passage we're going to study in a number of different translations, just to kind of make that point and kind of go, ooh, that verse was quite different in the different translations. I wonder why that was. You know, that can often raise uh, some interesting points. And then it takes me about a fortnight to write a sermon uh, not solidly, you know, I do sleep and eat, and but I spe- over a fortnight's time, I start writing. And uh, then, if I'm doing an 11 o'clock service, we have the, the availability of technology. We don't have technology at the 8 o'clock. We don't even have singing at the 8 o'clock, because uh, the organist isn't awake at that time in the morning, for obvious reasons. Uh, so, uh, but at 11 o'clock, I, and then I will then spend maybe a week doing the PowerPoint, because I want the presentation of the message to be attractive and clear and interesting, as, as well as what my voice drones on about, as it were. And that's all part of the rhetoric of, of trying to present it nicely and trying to find appropriate illustrations that aren't too um, kitsch or twee, I don't know if these words translate, aren't, aren't too terrible, because some Christian art is really you know, really bad. Um, anyway, I thought uh, Acts 7 uh, really picks up on this theme of being witnesses to Christ that we started off with before the break. So again, um, because we sort of changed around material a bit last minute, I haven't got a handout for this, but I'm sure if you want it, I can make available and get emailed to you the a PDF of the slides that I use and so on. But I thought uh, our friend is going to uh, read the, the passage uh, in Norwegian uh, for you, so we just have that to, to begin with. Thank you. Yeah. Da de hørte dette, ble de så rasende at de skal ha tenner mot ham. Mens Stefanus var fylt av den hellige ånd, og lette et blikk imot himmelen. 
Og der står han Guds herlighet, og Jesus står vi Guds høyrehånd. Der sa han, «Jeg ser himmelen åpen, og menneskesønnen står vi Guds høyrehånd.» Men da skrek de høyt og holdt seg for ørene, og alle som en står møtt imot ham. De drev han foran seg og steinet ham utfor byen. Vittnene la seg kappene sine ved føttene til en ung mann som het Selvus. Mens de steinet Stefanus, ba han og sa, «Herre Jesus, ta imot min ånd.» Så falt han på kne og ropte høyt, «Herre, tilregn dem ikke denne synden.» Ja, tilregn dem ikke denne synden. Med disse ordene så de møtte han inn. Saulus var enig i drapet på Stefanus. Samme dag brøt det løs en kraftig forfølgelse mot menigheten i Jerusalem. Alle unntatt apostlene ble spredt omkring i Judea og Samaria. Noen fromme menn begravde Stefanus og holdt en stor dødsklage over ham. Men Saulus for hardt frem mot menigheten. Han trengte seg inn i hjemmene og slepte ut både menn og kvinner og fikk dem kastet i fengsel. De som var spredt omkring dro rundt og forkynte ordet. Philip kom ned til hovedstaden i Samaria, og der forkynte han Kristus, og alle som en fulgte oppmerksomt med når de hørte Philip tale, og så de tegnene han gjorde. For mange hadde urene ånder som for ut av dem med høye skrik, og mange lamme og halte ble hevredet. Det ble stor glede der i byen. Great, thank you. Now, as you can see, this is, this is not a comfortable passage to preach on. This is a passage that really brings home the, the seriousness of discipleship to Christ and what that can involve. And remember, I'm, I'm thinking in the background of my mind, you know, what is this saying about our discipleship today in terms of our heads and our hearts and our, our hands? What's it claiming about what's true and good and beautiful? How do I get people to see that and engage with it in our modern context? What are the issues there? I've uh, given it a title of the gospel spreads through unlikely means. Death has become something of a, of a taboo, a subject we don't mention in Western culture. Death, both literal and metaphorical, is at the heart of Christianity. Though. The cross, after all, is an instrument of torture and execution. That is the key event for Christians, an event of torturous excruciating, that's where the term comes from, being on the cross, death. Stephen had his say. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, and you can look back over his sermon, which quotes lots of Old Testament passages to communicate his point, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. You know, you know the Flanders and Swan song, British comedians of a previous generation have this song about, I'm a gnu, and I wish I could ganache my teeth at you. They, they look them up on YouTube. <laughs> Flanders and Swan, the gnu song. But uh, to ganache, to gnash your teeth, culturally speaking here, means to show that you're angry or annoyed about something bad that you can't do anything to stop. It's bad, you're angry, but you're frustrated because you can't stop it. And that's the, the reaction of the, the, the Jewish religious leadership to Stephen's preaching 
of the gospel. They gnash their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why is Stephen going to persist in the face of his cultural leadership being angry with him? Because he sees the glory of God and of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Think of passage Luke twenty-two fifty-nine, when Jesus is on trial for the Sanhedrin himself. And he says, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And of course, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, was Jesus' favourite self-description. This links back to Old Testament, particularly the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel 7, one of Daniel's visions. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Remember, clouds are an image of the glory of God, biblically speaking. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And remember the Old Testament is is very particular about who can and cannot be worshipped. (laughs) Worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So critics have said, hey, a minute, is Jesus standing or is he sitting? <laughs> Seems to be a contradiction in here. You can't trust the scriptures. They're always contradicting themselves, aren't they? Well, look, folks, this is, this is visionary, apocalyptic. That means uh, rev- revealing what was hidden, apocalypse, revealing what was hidden, language. It's, it's a figurative, metaphorical picture language and shouldn't be read in a woodenly literal way. Um, the early church father Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, wrote a book on the literal interpretation of Genesis. And by that, he did not mean um, a young earth creationist interpretation of Genesis as... He meant interpreting Genesis in terms of the kind of literature that it is. Being sensitive to what kind of literature I'm reading to help me understand how to interpret that literature. And that's what Augustine meant by a literal reading of something. So the the meaning of this term has shifted over time. If we talk about, oh, you've read that, you've taken it literally today, we, we mean in a sort of woodenly literal way that ignores the indications of things like, hey, I'm using figurative language here, or this is an analogy, or what have you. So don't be too distracted by the fact that Jesus talks about standing and sitting and so on. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heavens, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's saying, Jesus is in, in a position of importance with God. Jesus and God are like this. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing. And I said, look at the important Greek terms, the term here, standing. 
Hestota, Hestota, to stand, place, set up, to establish, to appoint. So it doesn't necessarily mean standing, <laughs> anyway, at the right hand of God. Luke twenty-two fifty-nine. from now on the Son of Man will be seated, kathemai, to dwell, to live, or be seated, literally. So these words have a range of meanings, they're not contradicting each other at the right hand of God. Both verses are saying Jesus is firmly established in a position of authority next to God the Father. And of course, next to is metaphorical. <laughs> uh, it doesn't, you can't ask, well, how, how many inches to the right of God the Father is Jesus? You know? um, the Sanhedrin from the Greek word meaning sitting together was the Jewish, basically the Jewish high court. Although under the Roman occupation, it had lost the right to impose capital punishment. So Stephen affirms this claim about, the, about Jesus being the Son of Man, the claim that Jesus had made before the Sanhedrin. He affirms the claim that got Jesus killed, and he would have known that this was the claim that got Jesus killed. And he does it anyway, because he sees the glory of God and of Christ at his right hand. Well, at this, they covered their ears, like, la, 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 I don't want to hear any more. Stop it. Ah! I don't want to even listen to any, any of that garbage. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him to death. <laughs> they're not allowed to, but they're, they're carried away in their zeal. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. A uh, hint, keep an eye on this Saul character. He'll be back in a huge plot twist later. Okay? Well, if you're reading it for the first time, he's back in a huge plot twist later. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said that, he fell asleep. But compare this with Luke twenty-three thirty-four. Jesus said, on, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, says Stephen. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Don't hold this against them, says Stephen. Father, forgive them, says Jesus. So Stephen is reenacting what Jesus said from the cross as he is put under capital punishment like Jesus was for affirming the same claims that Jesus did. But of course, not about himself, but about Jesus. Now, of course, his falling asleep is a euphemism for dying, for death. And you could also say maybe that it's prophetic. Those who sleep tend to wake up. That's why Christians use that language of, you know, they have fallen asleep in Christ. Because one day they will wake up in Christ. We don't have the view that they're dead, they're gone, they're buried, that's it. 
I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. The one who believes in me, who trusts in me, will live even though they die, fall asleep. <coughs> so Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr to die for bearing witness to Jesus, to pick up on that theme from the first session. The Greek word martyrs means, means witness. That's what the word means, witness. As Christians were persecuted, the term came to mean one who suffers or dies for witnessing to their faith in Christ. Now, it's very important to point out that this is, of course, completely the opposite of the, the Islamic jihadist ideology of murdering others for one's faith via suicide. And I was going to say, they're, they're a martyr. They, they died a martyr by blowing themselves up and killing a lot of non-believers or whatever. Anyone killing in the name of Christ does so in direct contradiction of Christ. Matthew 26, 52. So it's letting other people murder you because of your beliefs in Christian, in Christian thought is martyrdom. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout, oh look, Judea and Samaria. Uh, what we had earlier, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world. Did Jesus has prophesied that? We had that earlier. Or Matthew 24, 9, it says, You will be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. This makes Christianity sound really attractive, doesn't it? Luke 21, 12, uh, Jesus says, They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. Whoopee! Why? Yeah, you have to ask yourself why. Um, Larry Hurtado has just um, published a book called something like Why Did Anybody Become a Christian in the First Centuries? <laughs> Given the, the minority persecuted status of Christianity, why did this religion grow? Why did people become Christians knowing that this sort of thing <laughs> was potentially going to happen to them. So godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. I recently uh, attended a couple of funerals happened in this last season and one of them was from an acquaintance from church used to be in my, my cell group. Um, she was very uh, poorly with uh, MS for a number of years and we had a lovely funeral service for her. And, you know, it genuinely was a lovely service, but it, it just struck that right Christian balance of saying, she is dead, she's not here anymore, we can't interact with her here and now, We've, she's lost to us, we are mourning, it is sad, it is tragic, she's left behind her young children and her husband. Uh, what, you know, tragic circumstances, what sadness, 
that is right to be sad about this. It is a sad thing. But we do not mourn as those without hope. Uh, her father-in-law gave that reading in the service. We do not mourn as those without hope. And we mourn with hope. And that is a far different prospect that she is with her Lord. And for those who are in, in the Lord as well, we look forward to being with her uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And we had that, that balancing hope as well. Uh, and a, a very clear communication of the, the gospel during the, the service. So godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, dun, 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 began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. <coughs> Remember to keep an eye out for this Saul character later. <laughs> Philip. That's Philip the Evangelist, not Philip the Apostle. There are two different Philips. Went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Remember, because the Jews had been so incited about Stephen and they'd, they'd kicked off and they'd murdered him and they'd persecuted the church and, and thrown out the Christians from the synagogues and so on. And the, well, the Christians had, had gone away like those seeds from the picture of the plot I had and they've started spreading the gospel. Um, so the Sanhedrin's move was a bit counterproductive, really, surprisingly. <laughs> counterproductive. Under persecution, the gospel spreads. But indeed, it's because of the persecution that the gospel spreads that Jesus had prophesied. Philip went down to, the city, to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Uh, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs, the miracles that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So we contrast of mourning, and we immediately go into joy. Uh, now here is an issue that I would think a modern congregation might have issues with. The existence of impure spirits. We're talking demons, guys. Yes? I believe in demons. I've written an entire book on uh, why it is reasonable in the modern age to believe in angels and demons, called The Case for Angels, if you want to look that up. Or uh, at a slightly shorter and cheaper experience would be to go to the Be Thinking website and look up my articles, Do, uh, Do Angels Really Exist? <coughs> the early church was persecuted particularly under the Emperor Nero uh, in the mid-60s AD. And uh, an early 1st, 2nd uh, century Christian writer called Tertullian in his Apology uh, from about 197 AD writes this. He says, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. This is not 
really an ancient phenomena. This is a modern phenomena. And we, when I gave this sermon, this particular event that I've got the picture up of here, ISIS executes dozens of Christians, uh, had just happened in the news that, that month. Modern martyrs, particularly you keep hearing news about the Coptic church in Egypt uh, being bombed uh, and, and so on. Uh, today there are those who want to kill us if we have faith in Christ. According to uh, Thomas Schreimacher of the International Society for Human Rights, some seven to 8,000 Christians are killed as martyrs every year. So there are probably more Christians killed every year now than there were during every year of the first century. <laughs> According to Open Doors UK and Ireland in 2013, the latest statistic I could find, there were 2,100 Christians killed for faith-related reasons that year. Uh, in 2015, that number rose to 7,100. So from 2,000-odd to 7,000-odd over a couple of years. The CEO of Open Doors, Lisa Pierce, says that the persecution of Christians is getting worse in every region in which we work, and it's getting worse fast. So this is where we have the, the English phrase, where the rubber hits the road. This is the, the, the point at which it really has to, it either works or it doesn't. Love your enemies. This is the Christian attitude towards the issue. The Christian has a calling, a calling to bear witness to Jesus, a, ball, a calling to bear witness to Jesus even to the point of martyrdom, should that be necessary, do not go looking for it, <laughs> in the way that Muslim martyrs go looking for it, and even to the point of loving to the utmost those who seek to make them martyrs, rather than hating those that they want to be killed as they are martyred. Matthew 5.44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, for the early church, for many in the church today, this is not just a, an abstract idea. Paul writing is in Romans 12.14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Uh, this is uh, Gina Fadley, the director of Youth with a Mission Frontier Missions. Yeah, this. One of our YWAM workers in the Middle East was contacted by a friend earlier this year and they met up and he was introduced to an ISIS fighter who had killed many Christians. He told this YWAM leader that he had begun having dreams of this man in white who came to him and said, you are killing my people. And he started to feel really sick and uneasy about what he was doing. The fighter said, just before he killed one Christian, the man said, I know you will kill me, but I give to you my Bible. The Christian was killed 
And this ISIS fighter actually took the Bible and began to read it. In another dream, Jesus asked him to follow him, and he was now asking to become a follower of Christ and to be discipled. The gospel spreads through unlikely, apparently, means through being persecuted and loving your persecutor. I know you're going to kill me. Please, take my Bible. Of course, persecution is a spectrum. Very few of us in Southampton or in Yimlacolin are going to be asked to give up our Bible to an ISIS fighter with a Kalashnikov in his hands. Matthew 5, 10-12 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. I've certainly been insulted on the internet for being a Christian. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. What a, what a strange reaction to determine, to choose to have towards that. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Whatever form persecution might take, Christians stand up for Jesus and for the gospel and for the kingdom. You know, the, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., assassinated in 1968 in the American part of the civil rights movement and one of the great orators uh, of the church. In one of his speeches, uh, he said this, Deep down in our non-violent creed, and of course he's speaking in a context where some of the people involved in the civil rights movement want, want to take violent action. Deep down in our non-violent creed is the conviction there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And if a man happens to be 36 year old as I happen to be, he might be afraid that his home will get bombed or is afraid that he will lose his job or is afraid that he will get shot he was. Or beat down by state troopers. Or he may go on and live until he's 80. He's just as dead at 36 as he would be at 80. And the cessation of breathing in his life is merely the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for that which is right. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for justice. A man dies when he refuses to take a stand for that which is true. Yeah, it's a modern day, Stephen. So, what do we take away for ourselves from this? To become a follower of Jesus is to inherit a responsibility to be a martyr, to be a witness to Jesus. Bearing witness to Jesus means being hated by some, even as you love them. 
But remember, that love, of love your enemies, that's not a feeling. We're not saying, follow Jesus and try to have warm, glowy, lovely feelings about people who want to machine gun you, or insult you on Twitter, or whatever. It is an acting for the other's good. Act for the other's good, even as they are acting with hatred towards you. So bearing witness to Jesus can mean dying for him. But even at that extreme, as Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus displays and inspires a love worth dying for. And that's the only kind of love that's worth living your whole life for. I think that's, that's the point of persuasion. It, it's saying, is this Christian way of living, and we've seen it in application to how it deals with persecution, is, is being part of that way of life worth it? Is it something worth living for and dying for? Jesus asked, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. And if you let your life go, you'll save it. Sounds very Zen. but uh, If you cling to your life instead of giving it to God, if you let your life go by giving it to God through Jesus... I am the resurrection of the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. Clearly, it was being convinced that Jesus was the risen and ascended Lord that gave Stephen the courage to die as a martyr to Jesus. We see, you know, he wasn't just unlucky. <laughs> he almost, like, prodded <laughs> with his message. He was like, so, no, I'm going to tell you how it is, I don't care that you're gnashing your teeth at me. This is what's true. I'm going to stand up for it. You do what you like. And he was so convinced. He didn't just believe in Jesus because he was some gullible first century guy who, you know, as we were talking about earlier. And you might like to look at Sean McDowell's recent book, which is based on his... PhD thesis about the history of what happened to the apostles. Uh, he says the first witnesses of the risen Jesus endured persecution. Many subsequently experienced martyrdom, uh, uh, signing their testimony, so to speak, in their own blood. The strength of their conviction, marked by their willingness to die, indicates that they did not fabricate these claims about Jesus. They, it wasn't just something they made up uh, as a way to, uh, you know, uh, leech off people's Sunday offerings or <laughs> whatever. Uh, rather, without exception, they actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, just because they didn't make it up doesn't mean that it, they were right in their belief. That doesn't prove it. It just shows that they didn't make it up. They could have been deluded somehow. You know, atheists will say, oh, it was all hallucinations of the resurrection and, and so on. But the, their sincerity marked by their martyrdom does close off one 
way of, of trying to deny the truth of Christianity. They really believed it. <laughs> uh, again, that's something that you can pursue in things that I've written and, and have online. Some words from um, the Archbishop of the CV, Justin Welby, from his Easter message for 2015. He said, the resurrection happened and it changes our view of the universe. Once we've seen the reality of the risen Jesus, nothing else should be seen in the same way as before. To witness is to be a martyr. I'm told that the Coptic Christians murdered in Libya last month died proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. They are martyrs, a word that means both one that dies for their faith and one that witnesses to their faith. There have been so many martyrs in the last year. On Maundy Thursday, around 150 Kenyans were killed because of being Christians. They're martyrs in both senses of the word. And Christians must resist, without violence, the persecution they suffer and support persecuted communities with love and goodness and generosity. Yet these martyrs too are caught up in the resurrection. Their persecution is overcome by Christ himself at their side because they share his suffering at their side because he rose from the dead. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the cruel are overcome, evil is defeated, martyrs conquer. <coughs> so, it's not an easy passage to think, right, I, I want to get my congregation enthused about being martyrs. <laughs> but it really does bring home the, the, the seriousness of thinking about what does it mean to follow Christ? Am I going to make that kind of decision? Um, does Christianity work as a way of life that's actually inspirational and good and beautiful? Is it something that is worth dying for and therefore worth living for? Or is this just, you know, a nice Sunday hobby? <laughs> uh, fills my time, gets me a bit of community, a bit of free childcare. Uh, is it a sort of paying my social dues? Um, it, it sort of, it really allows you to bring home the seriousness of the gospel message, and that, that and that the first believers they must have really believed this stuff. <laughs> um, they're not just making it up or you know they were really convinced yeah so there's another example of you know i hopefully see where that that idea of i'm thinking all the time thinking about spirituality discipleship what does this mean now what's the context today what are the objections to this today um what might get in the way of this congregation thinking yeah that's what i want to be that's what I want to be involved with. That's what I want to commit to. Here's who I want to be like more and more. Um, you know, some of it brings a lump to my throat. <laughs> Trying to read those quotes uh, and preach it is quite difficult. And, and also, the, of course, the, the central fact is when I'm preparing a sermon like this, you know, it's very easy for me to say, hey, let's all go be martyrs, folks. But of course, the finger was pointing at me when I say this. It's like I have to think, yeah, this, this has to be, as we saw in the five steps that we had from Thomas Morris and that Christ used about, 
courage. It's like it starts with, with me. I've got to preach the sermon to me first and, and then preach it and do all of that in the knowledge that I, of course, I am a fallible fallen sinner. <laughs> I am but a worm and, you know, etc. But I want to be involved in this. I'm striving to be a disciple and, and get better at it and, and so on and help other people. I'm, I'm trying not to do it from a position of, I've got this sorted, guys. Come and be like me. It's, it's Jesus has got this sorted for us, guys. Let's all try and help each other to be like him. That's hopefully the, 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 the attitude. Um, yeah. <coughs> so a- anything to uh, comment, discuss? Question, reflect, object. What would you normally say to your congregation then about uh, or regarding demons and angels, stuff like that? Right, yeah. Like you mentioned uh, the books and everything. Yeah. But like in short, would you go into it or just like? Uh, <laughs> yeah, how, it's quite difficult to go into in short measure, which is why sometimes I do a, what's called a literature punt, yeah. and I try to here's a book and here's a YouTube video or like come and talk to me about this issue. Yeah. I, you know, this is more than I can go into here, but I'm recognising that you might ha- well have an issue, mm-hmm. and I can see why. And uh, you know, if that's an issue for you, because it might not be for everyone. It's yeah. it's that balance between thinking here's here's an issue that that might be getting in the way for some people taking this seriously mm-hmm. and but other people are just fine with it like they've you know, well the bible says it, i believe it that solves it you know uh, but uh i don't want to just assume that i don't want to say you can think more deeply about these things and it's good to do so um the the fundamental point i think i would make is um it, it's about your background beliefs before you even come to the question of, of you know what is the particular evidence or reasons why I should believe in these things. If you assume a materialistic, naturalistic worldview and you think, well, everything's just matter and there's no God and human beings are just material objects, it's going to seem ludicrous to you to think that there are these, ooh, ghosts and demon, you know, demon-y kind of, what, you know, what are they like? Are they like Casper the Ghost or what are they made out of? Or, um, you know, it's just going to, that's silly. It's like, well, yeah, I agree from that point of view. Of course it's silly, but what if, what if you thought there was an, a, an immaterial, a non-material creator of the universe, God. And that God is omnipotent. He can do anything that's, that's possible that he, that he wants to, that's in line with the rest of his character. Um, is it possible that there are non-physical persons? Yeah, I, mean, I quote in my book, even atheists who admit, well, it's possible there are kind of things. The thing is, it's silly to think there are any. So if you already believe in a God, then you've got to think, well, it's possible that there are such beings. And indeed, if you think people are more than just matter, it's on the Christian worldview, we, you know, the, the human spirit, the soul, if you think people are, are finite images of God, finite persons, but we're embodied, so you think, well, okay, there's a world where there's, a, there's an infinite person who's unembodied, and he's created this whole universe, including people who are finite embodied persons who can exist in a disembodied state before we're resurrected at the end of you know the new creation and the new heavens and new earth and all we'll be resurrected in new bodies but in the meantime we're with christ in a sort of disembodied state so disembodied finite persons is certainly on the on the agenda from that worldview <laughs> um it wouldn't really be at all surprising if god were to make finite people who just aren't 
designed to be embodied most of the time. It's like, yeah, okay, that, that seems... <laughs> so you see how shifting the background belief, if you think people are more than matter and you think there's God, it's not wouldn't be particularly surprising if there were. And then you would, might ask, well, is there any reason to believe in such things? And then I would go through, well, yeah, there are, you know, let me give you half a dozen arguments for, yeah. <laughs> uh, for believing such things. So uh, it's all about your background beliefs, yeah. So I think it's sort of empathise from, from a certain point of view. So yeah, I can see why you would have problems with this, but that's you know that's because of where you're coming from. Um, don't get too derailed by angels and demons if you haven't sorted out whether or not there's even a god. <laughs> Focus there first, you know. <laughs> Let's have this this discussion later. I mean, you don't have to believe in angels and demons literally to be a Christian. Um, you don't have to. <laughs> I think you should, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think. I think that's the reasonable position to take, but, and I've argued for it, but, um, you know, it's like many of these sort of secondary tertiary issues, it's, it's all about God and Christ, and <laughs> other stuff will follow here. Yeah.